I don't think you're going to be able to rebuild trust. And I think what the pandemic and what the current sort of tensions on the LAC have done is that they've accelerated what one would have assumed would have happened over a period of five, six, seven, eight years within a span of six, seven months. This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region. Our goal is to help our listeners better understand Asia and reach informed judgments. In this episode, NBR non-resident fellow Arzan Tarapur interviewed Manoj Kelo-Romani and Suyash Desai, scholars from the Takshashila Institution, to discuss their report, An Indian Approach to Navigate China's Rise. What are the causes of this imperfect India-China relationship? Are they structural, related to China's behavior, or the character of the CCP regime? Where does India have a comparative advantage to push back and compete against China's influence in the Indo-Pacific region and beyond? How salient is public opinion in influencing India's foreign policy approach to China? Manoj and Suyash address these questions, as well as how India can strengthen itself, build partnerships in the region, and manage the rise of China without directly confronting it. Our interviewees are well-versed in these areas. Manoj Kelo-Romani is a fellow of China Studies at Takshashila, where he focuses on Chinese politics, foreign policy, and approaches to new technologies. Prior to joining Takshashila, Manoj spent 11 years working as a journalist in India and China, where he also helped set up digital newsrooms and train young journalists. Suyash Desai is a research analyst, also at Takshashila. Before joining Takshashila, he worked with The Outlook Magazine, The Indian Express, and the Indian Council of World Affairs in various capacities. To note, this episode was recorded before the confrontation in early September between Chinese and Indian troops along the Himalayan border. But much of this discussion focuses on the bigger strategic issues, so I think you'll still find this conversation salient. In fact, this episode will provide useful context to the recent clashes. Without further ado, now please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion on Asia Insight. Thanks, Manoj and Suyash, for joining us on the NBR podcast. Um, I'm really excited about this. This is a um, a podcast that we are running ostensibly, or I should say um, the hook is to discuss your latest report on India-China relations, um, which is a great report. Uh, but really, it's actually just a, an excuse to talk more broadly about India-China relations, I think. At least that's how I would like to take it. Um, it's a great report and I would commend it to all the listeners uh, because like Takshashila generally, the philosophy generally, it is, uh, I think, fair to say, pragmatic and realist in its orientation and therefore a very balanced report. Um, a lot of the discussion, uh, especially in the US, about China winds up being a little bit tinged with ideology increasingly uh, and that leads to some fairly firm and unbending views whereas this report I think really exhibits a clarity of thinking and a pragmatic approach that that suggests that look relations with China need not be a hundred percent confrontational or adversarial there there are productive avenues in bilateral relationships to be had uh, and to try and 
past the relationship and analyze it to find where those most productive avenues for the relationship are is a really important and productive uh, approach to take to this. So I commend you uh, for this report and I, and I commend it to all the listeners. Um, and perhaps before we get started on the report itself, I might ask you why the China focus? Uh, there's a fair bit of work coming out of Takshashila on China. Uh, so I would ask you personally, I guess, less, less as representatives of Takshashila, but more personally is, has China been something that is a lifelong passion for you? Or is it really something that is driven by events as the India-China relationship has become more fraught in recent years? Um, hi, Arzan. Uh, thank you so much for having us here. And thank you so much uh, for commending the report. And thank you so much for all your kind words on the report. Um, if I was to sort of look back at how I got into looking at China, I mean, honestly, I've stumbled into it. Um, you know, I, uh, my first visit to China, to the mainland, was in 2005. And uh, uh, my family sort of uh, had export businesses out of China. Um, you know, uh, as a community, we are the Sindhi community, we are a trading community. Um, and uh, we've been sort of trading in goods for the last 40, 45 years. My father has worked in China in the 19, late 1970s and 80s. Um, so, uh, I, my first visit was basically to go and visit a family member living in a small, uh, sort of semi-rural, sort of semi-urban area in China. Um, I didn't know the language. I didn't know anything. I was put on a bus, uh, through Hong Kong, uh, going through Hong Kong, uh, crossing into Shenzhen overnight bus. Uh, and basically I landed up waking up at three o'clock at a destination in the three o'clock in the morning at a destination, which I had no idea where I was and waiting at the bus stand for three hours, waiting for my cousin to come and pick me up. And at that point in time, my only thought was, I can't communicate with anybody. I don't know where I am. Um, I probably am lost and I'm probably not going to be found ever. Um, and my thought was that I am never coming back to this place. Um, and lo and behold, uh, a few years down the road, I was in China working as a journalist uh, for a couple of years independently and then subsequently with uh, state media, with CGTN. Um, so I spent three years with them. Um, and that sort of is where my interest developed uh, from a journalistic point of view, largely. Um, and I think subsequently, when I returned to India, um, I was working with a network that was being newly launched that had a foreign policy focus. Um, when we look at foreign policy uh, from an Indian lens, we have three different sort of arms that stretch out, which are sort of most important conventionally from an Indian perspective. Um, one is the United States, one is Pakistan, and the third is China. Um, I think Pakistan, people looking at Pakistan and India are sort of, uh, I think every nook and corner of the country, you'll find somebody studying Pakistan and having a view on Pakistan, which is so strong. Um, with the United States also, I think increasingly that's becoming the case. If you've got many people looking at the United States, I think with China, the issue was that there's, there's a language barrier. Um, there's a historical sense of distrust, yet there was this sort of, through the mid 2000s, we had the sense of, oh, China and India can sort of work together, two emerging powers, that ugly, horrendous phrase, Chindia, um, you know, those sorts of ideas. Um, yet we knew very little, we understood very little of China. And they sort of, uh, and I realized that, you know, the experience of having lived there, of having had some sense of the language, but a lot of sense of the culture, the politics, 
um, it can be invaluable for journalists. So, so just to inform journalists in India, because often people, journalists in India, very senior journalists in India would not even know uh, where do you go to access official data because the data is in Chinese, it's in Mandarin. Um, and I think that's changed over the last few years. Uh, but to me, that was a window of opportunity purely from a journalistic point of view, career point of view. That in time, sort of in the last three, four years has developed into a greater research interest. And that's how I sort of I've gotten into looking looking at China. And I think sort of the last thing that I'd add to that is the sense that increasingly we wanted the narrative to shift in India from Pakistan being the sort of primary threat or the primary challenge to looking towards China. Um, and I think actions over the last six years on the border have sort of gradually shifted that narrative to today much more so. Uh, where I think there was a lack of realization uh, or lack of appreciation of the challenge that China presented to India um, because we were so focused on our Western borders. Uh, and I think that's also shifted. So I think those are the kind of things that drew me towards China. I don't think it was a plan. I sort of stumbled upon this stuff. In my case, I started researching. I was I started my bachelor's in journalism, and then I went into research for doing my master's uh, from Mumbai University and my MPhil PhD from JNU. In JNU, I was working on uh, India's foreign and strategic policies, and that is where the interest in looking at China developed. But I was not getting any official way to look at China. So that's why uh, I entered Takshashila, and that is where Manoj introduced me to uh, secure China's security policy, specializing in PLA, uh, on working on PLA. And that is how I started working on PLA per se and China's security policy, along with Manoj on China's foreign policy occasionally. And yeah, so the plan generally is to study the language and then do a PhD in the future on security policy. So that is how everything is looking at right now. Good for you. Speaking of commending uh, your work, that I was a too late uh, arrival at the PLA Insight Weekly Newsletter, um, which is something that you produce weekly. That is a fantastic resource. Um, it's a very useful compendium of the reporting that's come out in the past week. Um, and again, alongside the, the major report that you've published, I would, I would commend our listeners to signing up for this weekly newsletter. It is fantastic. So with that, let's, uh, let's get into this report on, on some of the themes uh, of this report. And maybe I'll, I'll pick up on something that you said, Manoj, about interest in India on China and how everyone's got an opinion on Pakistan, and increasingly people might have an opinion on India, uh, oh, sorry, on the US. Um, and certainly they've probably got a cousin studying in the US. Uh, that probably doesn't apply to China. Um, so the question then is, when we're talking about foreign policy, and this is something that academics have studied as well, how salient is public opinion in influencing India's foreign policy approach to China. Now, obviously, when we compare it to Pakistan uh, as a source of cross-border terrorism that regularly costs Indian lives and has a very long and impassioned history in India, obviously, there's going to be a difference. Uh, and obviously, public opinion and especially some of the uh, 
some of the more hysterical news coverage will be a part of that. But when we when it comes to China, to what extent do you think Indian policymakers, decision makers, are responsive to public opinion in India? That's an interesting question, and it's a little tricky, right? Because um, if you just look at what's happened over the last few months, um, I think today public opinion makes it extremely difficult for any government to go back to business as usual with China. Um, yet, my sense is that uh, because these relationships are in some ways so, because the India-China relationship is in some ways so top-heavy, it's so driven by New Delhi and Beijing, um, that public opinion plays a far smaller role even in India. Um, yes, at present, it's going to be extremely difficult. Yet over a period of time, if things were to be normalized at the border again, um, I can see India and China sort of returning to some sort of an equilibrium where the public opinion would not be as uh, explosive, for the lack of a better word. And that's because you don't see China as the kind of daily threat, uh, you know, through terrorism, uh, like you said, with regard to Pakistan. Um, yet I think there is a deeper consciousness that's developing right now, right? I mean, uh, the sense that uh, over, say, things like 5G, over things like uh, trade, the trade imbalance, um, there is genuine public frustration uh, because of those issues, because those do impact businesses, those do impact individuals. And I think that's one kind of frustration. The challenge of, say, things like uh, 5G, I don't think it's necessarily within the public consciousness that, you know, uh, what would it mean to have, say, a Huawei or a ZTE embedded in our core networks? Uh, what are the sort of challenges of data and all of that? I don't think those necessarily exist in public consciousness, but there is an attempt by uh, analysts like us, by government, to try and make that argument far more publicly so that the public understands why certain decisions are being taken. Because if I was an individual, uh, you know, looking at maximizing my benefit, I'd look at cheap, high quality Chinese products and say, why am I not being given those? Um, but uh, there's an attempt to try and explain those decisions uh, and try and make that point. I think from a business community point of view, uh, which is the other aspect of this relationship, which is really important and which in some ways is organic. Um, I think there is, uh, there has for long been a sense of, you know, not just a protectionist streak among businesses, but also a sense of being uh, played unfairly by the Chinese. Um, and I think that's playing out right now with sort of the opportune moments, you know, things have sort of, uh, there's been a confluence of everything together where now you've got the opportunity for that sort of policy to be pushed. Um, but even if you don't sort of discount the last three, four months, go back to November, India pulled out of RCEP uh, predominantly because of its concerns with regard to China, but also reflecting the fact that our own economy was not where we wanted it to be. Our manufacturing sector was not competitive. Um, and the answer that we chose to, for, to an uncompetitive manufacturing sector was to protect it. Um, and that reflects sort of sense, uh, the sense of the business community within the country, that it needs protection. Um, so I think in those senses, the public opinion sort of plays a role. Um, but again, because these relationships are so dominated by New Delhi and Beijing, and there is so little organic things like tourism, things like cultural exchanges, everything is manufactured in some way. Um, and I think because of that, you don't necessarily see public opinion playing that big a role. Yet in a crisis, like say what we've seen in the last few months, it will play a significant role. 
and it will continue to play a significant role until there can be some degree of normalcy. Um, and I mean, if you just go back sort of to the history of the relationship, um, the 1962 conflict, it took 17 years after that to achieve some sort of normalcy, but many more years after that, till 1988, that we could come to an equilibrium. Um, so I think it tells you that it depends on how deep the break is. Today, the break is significant, um, but it's not 1962. Um, uh, yet it's going to be extremely challenging for an Indian government, particularly realizing that you have so few labels to push back against China, to sort of satiate public opinion, public anger, which exists, um, and to move on. So I think right now what we're doing is that we're trying to, uh, in some ways, manage the border, the government is trying to manage the border while arriving at some sort of a, while satiating some degree of public anger. And that's, I think, we've seen in terms of some of the economic measures that have been taken and the way those have been reported to the public. For example, the app ban. Uh, the banning of apps was reported as this, you know, meteoric surgical strike that we've carried out, which is absurd. But I think that's to sort of satiate the public anger. Um, and I think, uh, this is my sense about Indian governments and particularly this government. We're generally good at managing public anger in India. This government is particularly skilled at it. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily going to be that big an issue. Unless, of course, we see greater breaks at the border. But there's a, but there's a flip side to this as well, right? Yes, managing public anger is important because you don't, as a government, want to be boxed into a certain course of action. But the flip side to that also is that there are some analysts who would suggest that India needs to take China more seriously as a long-term competitive threat. And if the public is not interested, energized, engaged in the issue, then it becomes more difficult for the government to undertake the important but less urgent work of competing with China, not on the border, but on a multi-sectoral, multi-regional uh, front, right? And so from my perspective, uh, where in the West a lot of people are frustrated by India's halting response to China sometimes, uh, in part, I would suspect that's because China does not carry the same political salience, the political connotations, it doesn't have the same political weight domestically as India's more urgent threats like Pakistan, or to the extent that it does, it's very much driven by crises on the border. And so the response is, let's fix the border, not let's figure out how to compete with China long-term comprehensively. Yeah, so I sort of partly agree with that, right? I mean, just let's look at what uh, this government, the Modi government has done ever since it came to power. Um, and I think over the last six years, that change has taken place somewhat even in the public consciousness. So if you go back to uh, the first meetings between Modi and Xi Jinping in Gujarat, um, lots of bonhomie, but accompanied by tension at the border. Um, subsequently, you had uh, a controversy around China publishing maps, which uh, created sort of careful in India. Um, subsequently, you had Modi visiting Xi'an and, you know, meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, I think that was 2015. Um, again, the idea was that this relationship is moving in somewhat of a positive direction, yet you will see uh, some irksome dis uh, actions at the border. Um, so the issue was the border is the problem, but the rest of the relationship is actually going smooth. 
But that sort of starts to turn from 2015, 2016 onwards when this issue of uh, Masood Azhar's listing as a designated terrorist at the UN, uh, India's entry into the nuclear suppliers group sort of comes up. And I think that sort of starts to build the public consciousness in India that China is fundamentally inimical to India's rise. Um, and that consciousness starts to sort of build from that point of time. Um, yet, I think the fundamental challenge has been that how do you uh, take on an adversary that's much larger, much more prosperous, and therefore in material power, much stronger than you, and also uh, holds the border over you as this sort of sword where it can sort of prick you at different points of time and hurt a government politically. Um, how do you take that adversary on while understanding that on an economic level, you need the partner, you need him as a partner, him or her as a partner for you? Because uh, if you are going to do things like digital India, um, given sort of India's economic uh, status at the moment, given sort of income, income sort of status in, in the country, you will need cheaper, high quality goods. So how do you sort of balance that, you know? And I think that's been the challenge for most governments and for, I think in public consciousness also, that's been the sense. Uh, but I don't think people have thought of it as deeply as, you know, um, how, I think if you saw the last few months, what you would have seen was that people, when they were very angry, they were throwing off their Chinese made television sets, right? Um, I think the challenge is how many television sets can you throw off without hurting you, while hurting, while you know, do that to sort of prick the other person, but not hurt yourself as much. And I think that's been a challenge that increasingly it has existed in public consciousness. There's much more awareness of that. Uh, and like I said, there's, a, there's sections of the business community which are interested in leveraging that opportunity uh, to support, uh, you know, a protectionist agenda. Um, I think the public is generally coming around to that. There's much more support for that than there was in the past. Let's see if that support sustains, because at the end of the day, the people will have to speak through their pockets. Um, and once that starts to hurt, I guess we will see some changes. Uh, but I think that's the challenge, right? How do you deal with an adversary? Uh, and I think increasingly people do see China as an adversary. Um, the issue is how do you deal with it? And that's the sort of conversation that we're currently having. Okay, so let's, 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 that's, a, that's a perfect segue. Let's pick up on this issue of China as an adversary or um, I think, as you put it in your report, that the relationship is less than ideal. Uh, so if that very diplomatic phrasing is true, then can we discuss a little bit about what you see as the causes of this less than ideal condition in the relationship? Uh, are the causes of this less than ideal condition structural? Is it because of China's bad behavior? Is it because of the character of the CCP regime? Where do the causes of this lie, which obviously then has implications for the prospects of the relationship improving? Yeah, I think I sort of, uh, I my view is that this is a structural issue. Um, so I don't think this is pe pe peculiar to, I mean, the CCP has a role to play, Xi Jinping has a role to play, but I think this is a structural issue. Um, Look, uh, firstly, we look back at history and we see that there has been deep historical distrust and there is a historical legacy that both sides carry and India more so than China because uh, the 1962 war, in, I mean, to be frank, India lost the war um, and therefore, uh, you know, we carry the weight of that. We carry the sense of Chinese perfidy that led to that conflict. 
um, and that's very deeply ingrained in Indian psyche. Um, in contrast, uh, I mean, in my time in China, I remember when I was living over there, I used to uh, try and, uh, you know, ask my colleagues who were usually in their mid to late 20s, early 30s, and I used to ask them about uh, the India-China conflict, and most of them had just not heard about it. Because um, they had absolutely no sense that there was ever a conflict between India and China. They knew there were tensions on the border, uh, but they had no sense of a war. Um, so that sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sure that sort of changed after Doklam in 2017 when uh, the People's Daily republished its uh, uh, 1962 uh, warning and op-ed. Um, but I think that sort of didn't exist in the psyche as much as it existed in India. I mean, in India, we grew up watching a movie uh about the 1962 war which and you know the songs from that movie sort of resonate every independence day and every republic day so it's sort of it stays with us um so i think that's one part of it that historical distrust that historical baggage and the historical sense of uh being uh you know uh not being treated well by the chinese subsequently uh you've seen both these sort of countries rise uh and as both of them have risen, I mean, you reached it in equilibrium where you sort of agreed, and this started happening in the, 19, in the late 1980s and in the 1990s, where you sort of agreed on certain, uh, what sort of the diplomats of that era call a modus vivendi. You agreed on the idea that uh, we'll manage the border, we'll maintain peace and tranquility at the border. Um, and both sides, to their credit, have managed to do that uh, until this past year. Yet, uh, and we'll sort of keep our hands off each other's periphery as much as we can. And that was not necessarily as challenging at that point in time because uh, neither side had their interest didn't expand that far into each other's peripheries. Um, today, about 55% of India's trade passes through the South China Sea. Uh, you know, China's sort of engagement through BRI in South Asia, its engagement in Pakistan has expanded from just a from largely a military driven engagement to a military economic overall society driven engagement um china's china's trade passing through the indian ocean uh, has sort of significantly changed over the last few decades so i think there are structural reasons why we're rubbing up against each other uh, and uh, that's going to continue as both powers continue to rise um and that's going to lead to far more friction and uh, and I think we've seen that play out in the last few years. If you look at what happened in the Maldives with uh, the Abdullah Yamin regime, uh, if you look at what's happening in Nepal, if you look at what's happening in Sri Lanka, um, those are the kind of things that's playing out. Or if you look at, I mean, uh, often people mention South Asian countries as an example, and uh, often Indian diplomats get very defensive when you talk about that. So I'm going to give you another example of India's relationship with Vietnam. Uh, it's something that's going to definitely annoy the Chinese. Um, or say India's uh, development of the Sabang port in Indonesia. Um, those are the kind of things that are going to sort of, uh, you know, create friction between uh, both the parties. So that's the sort of structural dimension where both these powers are rising. Now, if you look at the world around us, there's massive flux underway uh, within the US and how the US is approaching the world. Um, and that's going to create more challenges for both these sides also, because uh, I mean, History has shown that the U.S. is a fundamental factor in this bi in this bilateral relationship, also, right? I mean, Tandy Madan's book uh, does a great job of explaining that, um, and I think that sort of change is also going to impact this. The structural sort of geopolitical change is going to have a role, and I think lastly, I'd come to Xi Jinping uh, and the CCP. I mean, to me, increasingly, Xi Jinping sees China as what he calls a major power, 
and therefore he wants china to act like a major power and i think he is he and the party are still figuring it out figuring out what it means to act like a major power also if you have power which clearly you've cultivated over the years um what's the use of it if you can't exercise it to achieve your political objectives um and i think that's what we are seeing playing out right now the structural dynamics along with a desire uh, to exercise the power that you've cultivated to achieve your political objectives in in china uh, and i think even to be sort of frank i think the chinese communist party is also figuring out what it means to sort of exercise that power what do you achieve what are the limits of your power and the only way you can figure out the limits of your power is by exercising it and hitting hitting a wall hitting pushback and i think those are the kind of things that are currently at play and i think that's where uh, that's why i think the relationship is sort of the future is fairly turbulent for this relationship for the india china relationship well exactly so you've 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 started my next question you've started your answer to my next question which is if that's the case if the relationship is deteriorating for fundamentally structural reasons history geography expansion of strategic interests then realistically how much better can it be yeah that's a that's a really difficult question to answer um i don't think uh, i don't think we can really see see unless we're going to see a fundamental political decision taken from uh, both sides particularly from the chinese side that uh, we need to maintain uh, a sense of balance in the relationship and we need to address some of the core irritants uh, and the boundary dispute is the primary irritant um i don't think you're going to be able to rebuild trust um and i think uh, what the pandemic and what the current sort of tensions on the lac have done is that they've accelerated what one would have assumed would have happened over a period of 5 6 7 8 years uh, within a span of 6 7 months um and i think that's where the real challenge has come from in indian perspective because one would have hoped that over a period of 5 6 7 years um india's growing economic clout um would have ha- allowed us and sort of that would have uh, yielded greater material power greater hard power and would have allowed us to better sort of hedge and better sort of manage this relationship at present uh, i think that's the challenge that we have that uh, we are all, uh, today uh, as we're recording this in the evening we're going to release quarterly numbers for the indian economy um we're expecting a historical slump just like every other country around the world has experienced in the quarter where the pandemic has hit them the worst um we're seeing job losses we're seeing serious economic challenges i think that's where our sort of challenge lies that how do we manage this relationship and the only way to manage this relationship from that sense is yes you need to cultivate hard power and uh, one was hoping that you know a sustained economic growth over a period of time would have given us that capacity um so therefore we now need to look at maybe other asymmetric options bal- greater balancing which we didn't probably want to do uh, now we probably will have to do far more of that um so the, i think in general to answer your sort of the basic point of your question um i don't necessarily see the relationship getting better um can it become far more stable yes it can become far more stable but that primarily depends on what happens in the boundary um yet even if the boundary is stable i think those frictions about say the role of tech companies uh, sort of the economic engagement between the two sides are going to persist but i think if the boundary question was stable those would be far more manageable um, you'd still see both sides competing far more in the indian neighborhood and those sorts of things 
um, but it, it could have been far more manageable. Today, it seems far more difficult to do that um, because clearly the status quo on the boundary has changed. And I think that will be very difficult from an Indian point of view to accept that and keep business as usual. So I don't see, like I said, I don't see things improving. I don't see stability also returning um, unless, of course, uh, Beijing decides that it prioritizes its stability and therefore acts according to that. So the ball is actually in Beijing's court. From an Indian point of view, uh, we've hit a place where uh, we need to respond uh, through different means. Uh, and the, challenge, the opportunities that we'd hoped we would have over a period of five years where, this thing, where things worsen um, are no longer there. So our choices have become far more constrained in that sense. And that's where sort of we need to take a call on what do we do with our uh, balance approach to balancing cultivating hard power do we need to do we need to spend on another aircraft carrier or should we look at asymmetric options um, and those are the kind of choices that from an Indian point of view now come to the fore you have a real knack of answering questions before I ask them because <laughs> I was the the next question I was going to ask was exactly that so when you talk about China's expanding influence across South Asia when you talk about the Maldives when you talk about Nepal and Sri Lanka and Chinese inroads into South Asia, uh, both in state-to-state uh, -state relations, but also an expanding military footprint into the region. I wonder at this point, what are India's levers? What, where does it have a comparative advantage that it can use uh, to uh, push back against Chinese influence. And I don't mean where, uh, meaning geographically in which country, I mean where uh, functionally or sectorally. Uh, in, on what issues does India have an advantage um, or have power that it can exercise uh, to compete effectively against Chinese influence? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, okay, let's look at it this way. The first thing is geography. Um, India is obviously far more organically connected to its to this proto-South Asian region than China is, um, you know, and uh, that's sort of one advantage. Have has India sort of used that to its advantage? Have the successive Indian governments done that? I would say not really. Um, we've been very lax in terms of uh, the delivery on connectivity projects, um, and I think we need to sort of. Uh, we need to deliver far more. I think we need to promise less and we need to deliver far more in terms of our connectivity projects. That's the first thing. Um, sorry, let me just sort of push that back further. We can't match the Chinese dollar for dollar in the broader region. Um, our best strategy to deal with sort of Chinese influence in the region is economic growth. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, the best sort of strategy to deal with China's rise is 8% economic growth consistently for a period of time. Um, clearly, that's not happening this year. It's probably not going to happen the next year, but let's hope that we come back to it from 2022 onwards. Um, but I hope that Indian governments focus on that primarily because whatever we do will radiate from that domestic economic growth uh, or whatever we can do will have to radiate from that domestic economic growth. The next aspect is the del delivery of our connectivity projects. We've not delivered uh, what we should have. Uh, and I think we need to work on improving uh, on that front. Uh, if that means employing, if that means getting the private sector in, involved, if that means uh, re-looking at the efficiency of state organizations in delivering those projects, I think we need to take a serious look. Um, these are no longer, and for the longest time, these have not been about just 
connectivity. Uh, I think that understanding has developed within New Delhi that connectivity is a strategic imperative. Um, and countries around uh, your neighborhood are looking at development as an imperative in that sense. And you need to deliver on those. And I hope that we can continue doing that. And the geography that we have, the geographical advantage that we have works in that context. The third thing is, uh, again, linked to geography is that militarily, uh, let's be honest, um, the land boundary, uh, because of the threat from two sides, from the eastern and the western front, um, and because of the challenges of the terrain across the land boundary with China, um, is your neither side is really going to win a penetrating war against the other. You know, uh, even if we develop the different mountain strike corps that India wants to develop, we aren't really going to enter deep into the PRC to capture territory. We don't want to. Uh, and I suspect that the Chinese are not interested in entering deep into the mainland of India and capturing territory. So I don't think that's a conflict that either side needs to prepare for from the point of view of this is going to be uh, a long drawn conflict. Um, and from an Indian point of view, given the nature of which infrastructure is developed by the Chinese and the interest rate developed by India on its boundary uh, and the tensions around infrastructure on the, on the boundary, um, the land boundary is a, is a threat and a challenge, whereas the maritime domain is an opportunity. And I don't think we've, uh, it's, an, it's far more expensive, of course, to cultivate maritime power. Um, and I don't think we've necessarily done ourselves any favors on that front. Um, I think that conversation has developed. Um, it's far more vibrant today than it was five years ago. Um, the fact that yesterday there were news reports telling us that while the Galwan clashes happened after that India sent a vessel to the South China Sea, um, I'm still we're still awaiting details on what the vessel was, what it was doing over there, uh, and you know whether that was a signal or not. Who knows? Uh, or, and I think it will depend on some of the details. But the idea that we are seeing talk about the Andaman and Nicobar Islands and developing those, uh, the idea that we are seeing using India's blue economy as an opportunity for its neighboring states, um, I think those are some of the things that we can do and we should be doing. Uh, in terms of our neighboring states. Um, I think what's most vital, again, I said the economic development that India uh, uh, that India has, the growth that India has, will radiate strength across the region. That is what will make you attractive to elites who want to come uh, and you know study in India, the children who want to come and study. Um, there was a point of time uh, going back to the Nehruvian era where that was the case. People wanted to come and study in India. Today, elites around the world, not just South Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, go to China. Um, and I think we need to start thinking of those things seriously. And again, that begins from domestic reform. Um, and I think those are the kind of things that we need to do and specifically look at our neighbors. What is it that we can offer them? The last thing in all of this, we need to cultivate and we need to distinguish ourselves from China from the value proposition point of view. Um, and that should reflect in the kind of initiatives that we take in terms of infrastructure in our neighboring countries. It's not just roads and bridges. Uh, when India builds parliament buildings, when India builds sort of, you know, uh, I mean, China builds parliament buildings in Africa, China builds headquarters in Africa, China builds stadiums. Uh, when India also invests in some of these things, the way in which we invest, uh, you know, uh, the participatory nature of our agreements, um, uh, the way we go about executing a project, uh, and the nature of projects that we invest in, uh, you know, are we investing in the constituency of a politician just to give him a boondoggle project that he can go and sell back? Or are we investing in the future of a country? That's the kind of thing that we should be doing and publicizing. 
um, you know, and I think that's the kind of thing that we should be doing much more of. Uh, so I think th that's where our strength lies. But again, that comes back uh, to things at home. Um, are we um, providing that reassurance domestically in that value proposition of democracy, of openness, and you know, of fairness, of economic liberty, and those sorts of things? And if you're not doing that domestically, it's really hard to play act internationally. Uh, and I think the Chinese have learned that if you're not, if you don't have the, if you don't, if those values are not part of your domestic ecosystem, they can't be uh, transplanted abroad. So I think that's what we need to do. So see, this this raises to my mind a bit of an interesting contradiction because, as you say, there are um, approaches that India can take, and there are domains and regions where India has an opportunity to make inroads. However, there are trade-offs and India, like every country, has finite resources. And when you have a, a standoff in Ladakh, and as you say, these core irritants remain unaddressed, then surely if I was sitting in Beijing thinking about how best to compete with India, my sense would be I'm going to keep that LAC pot simmering i'm going to keep india investing into that resource sink so that it doesn't invest in areas where it could make uh, where, where its marginal rupee could make a better uh, investment uh, so uh, so how does india square that because it seems like it's at the mercy of beijing's uh, approach to the border is there a way to escape that situation where India must react to what happens on the border first and foremost as the core irritant before it can do anything else? I think yeah, that's a really good question. I think that's a challenge for most Indian uh, national security planners, defense planners and policymakers. I think um, so if you look at it this way, um, what and in some ways I'm very thankful to the Chinese for what they've done in the last few months. Um, they've essentially made the LAC into what will become the LOC. Um, you will see far more long-term strengthened Indian deployment at the LAC, or at least I hope we will see that um, because the Chinese have created that threat perception. Now, uh, I hope that while we do that, we also don't necessarily invest far more in creating more units to do that, we actually rebalance from the West. Um, you know, uh, we rebalance from the frontier with Pakistan. Um, and at the same time, yes, there is a trade-off. We need to look at the seas and we need to look at what we do in the seas. Because uh, one of the best ways to sort of take the conflict to the Chinese is to actually take it into a domain where, it, where they do feel threatened. Um, and I think that's why we need to invest in the seas irrespective. At present, I'm not necessarily certain uh, how far the Indian sort of defense establishment is moving in that direction. You see scattered reports, but at the same time, you also see the way in which sort of the new theater command system is being developed in India. Um, and it seems like it's going to be army heavy, um, which sort of, again, creates the challenges, which sort of engenders systemically the challenge of what, is, what happens to the Navy. Um, I think the other thing is that we need to seriously consider investing in asymmetric capabilities, space, cyber, um, 
in, as the Chinese military sort of the PLA sort of modernizes, um, uh, we find ourselves in a position somewhat similar to what say the PLA found itself into a position with the Americans 15, 20 years ago, right? Um, you have a much more powerful adversary, which is far more connected, uh, which relies on space uh, far more than you do. Um, and can you therefore look at asymmetric options? So I think in some ways we need to learn uh, from the Chinese how they approach that challenge um, and we need to do something similar. The border issue will remain a prickly issue. Um, what this current standoff has told us is that while it remains a difficult issue, there are certain costs beyond which the Chinese are also unwilling to bear for the costs. Uh, and the Galwan incident tells you a little bit about that, right? Um, the fact that the Chinese, uh, that the PLA lost lives uh, and the fact that the Chinese foreign minister has been repeatedly talking about India conducting an investigation into what happened at the border or demanding that India conduct an investigation. And since then, uh, if you see the rhetorical change from the Chinese side, that there is a certain point at which the costs also become far more problematic for Xi Jinping. Um, does that mean that they will not engage in conflict and conflict is impossible? Of course not. Uh, but it also tells you that in, the, in sort of under normal circumstances, there is a certain degree of cost the Chinese are willing to bear and beyond that, no, it creates political challenges even for them. Um, and I think that's good for us to know. Uh, it's good for us to know. Um, so I think we need to realize that the border is going to remain a problem. We need to manage it far more pragmatically rather than throwing everything and the kitchen sink at it. Um, and we need to therefore look at the fact that maybe uh, the trade-off will mean that we will invest far more in maintaining a sort of a force presence at the border that might reduce your sort of fund flow for naval development. So instead of building that next aircraft carrier, uh, like I said, if you can learn from the Chinese in the early 2000s and say we need asymmetric options in the sea, you've got the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, what do you do with those? Um, I've spoken to a number of uh, former Indian Navy officers uh, at across the different ranks and the sense that I get is that this conversation about the Andaman and Nicobars is probably as old as I am. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, not much has moved, yet we're seeing greater urgency today. Um, so I'm hoping that that urgency will yield outcomes. Um, and I'm hoping it will not yield outcomes uh, which we can't afford, but actually yield outcomes which give us bang for the buck. Um, again, I'm, uh, I'm interested in us having the capability to inflict pain on the sea to Beijing. Um, it's not about war at the sea. It's about having the capability to inflict pain. And I'm hoping that that's what we are developing right now. So on that topic, let's zoom. We, we, we've got a few minutes remaining. So I'm gonna ask one question where we zoom in on the current crisis and then a couple of questions to conclude where we zoom out on the, on the prospects for the relationship. If we zoom in, a couple of days ago, or earlier this, I think last week, I should say, uh, CDS General Ravitz said that India still has some military options that it could exercise to reverse the incursions. Um, it sounds like what you're talking about, and I think Nitin Pai has also said this uh, publicly, uh, the option that India has is in the maritime domain, not on the border. Uh, so I wonder, can you fact check the CDS for me? Does India actually have military options to reverse the incursions? The short answer is that uh, yes, we do. 
uh, it'll be an it'll be a costly option. It's not going to be without cost. Um, I think uh, the the best option that we have uh, for that we had this time and then we would have in the future is uh, to essentially do what the PLA has done to us, nibble away a part of territory and then essentially bargain back to status quo. Or if they don't want to bargain back to status quo, that's also fine. Um, but I think that's what uh, was the best option even at that point of time for us. Um, and I don't know, I'm absolutely uh, unclear as to why we didn't exercise it. Because it's not like uh, Nitin or I am the first person to think about this. Yeah, so, you know, I don't see why we didn't sort of exercise it. I'm still quite unclear about that. But I think that remains the best option. Also, I think it's important to sort of put uh, the, the geography of the sort of place where this is happening into sort of context, right? Um, what has the PLA done? They've essentially, there's a blue zone, which India sort of used to patrol and had its uh, sort of the blue zone where India sort of controlled the territory. There's a gray zone where neither side controlled territory, yet both sides patrolled. And then there is a red zone, which the PLA controlled. Um, the PLA has basically encroached a little bit into the gray zone uh, and they've occupied territory. Um, and they have changed the status quo in that sense uh, across different areas. So in sort of the Depsang Plains, uh, they've occupied certain areas, but they've blocked up patrols. That's the problem. In the Pangongso uh, around that lake, um, they've occupied certain terrain, which was not occupied by anybody. It was the gray zone. Um, and again, in sort of Gogra, Hot Springs, Galwan, they occupied territory, which was not necessarily occupied by anybody. And they've said, this has forever been our territory. And therefore, we are occupying it. Um, I don't think that's uh, that has been their claim ever since. That they claim a large section. I mean, we don't know what they claim because they don't tell us exactly what they claim. But one would presume that this is part of their claim, given that they claim much of uh, Ladakh. Um, so, in a, in the, politically, it's obviously problematic from an Indian point of view. Tactically, it raises some challenges on the ground for the armed forces, but those are not insurmountable challenges. Strategically, it sends a signal to India and it's actually damaging for Beijing because uh, essentially what they've done by gaining six, eight, two kilometers here and there is lost uh, the entire mass of India. Um, and I think that's the sort of broader thing that we need to keep in mind. As far as what the CDS says, that do we have military options? Um, yeah, I mean, you always have military options, right? India, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think the Chinese have made this point, right? We are a, our economy is five times larger than yours. You're not an adversary to match us. That economy is going to be of little use when you're fighting on the border. You know, uh, you know, yes, it gives you tools and equipment and whatever, but these are nuclear armed states, uh, you know, the Indian Army is prepared for conflicts on the border uh, in those hostile terrains. So I don't think that's a huge issue. Um, the issue is the cost of that uh, action, the military action. And is it worth the cost of sort of taking back that territory? I mean, this is sort of salami slicing in the hills uh, of Ladakh. Uh, and it's, is, it, is the cost worth it? And I think that's the challenge. That's the sort of thing that India needs to decide. I don't think we are going to be exercising our military option, uh, at least not in terms of direct confrontation. If we had to, our ideal ex our ideal attempt was to have taken away another piece of territory and therefore acted on that. Um, I think we are therefore looking at using different tools of power, different instruments, economics being one of them, um, where we are trying to sort of uh, push back enough so that the Chinese realize that it's worth their while not to engage in this. 
yet at the same time i mean if i was in if i was sitting in beijing if i was a security planner in beijing i'd say um you would anyway not necessarily uh i mean india if you think of it from beijing's point of view and they would have said that look what's the guarantee that you don't anyway go down the road that you're going you know you pulled out of our set you did all these things what's the guarantee so we might as well continue down the road we're doing uh, and i think that's something that needs that's the kind of conversation that both sides need to have about what are the assurances that each side needs from each other because we still don't know what beijing needs from india what what does it need from delhi um and if it needs neutrality my assumption is if it needs neutrality with regard to the us how do we give it that neutrality you know what is the tangible thing that delhi can give that will assure beijing that we're not picking sides uh you know we are just working with whoever is developing whoever is helping developing our capabilities um i mean we buy arms from the russians we buy arms from the americans um you know uh, so but what is it that will give beijing that assurance uh, i don't see what india can do um so i think that's the other challenge i think uh, yunsun in her piece sort of argues right uh, that uh, there is an intangible element that beijing requires from delhi and that's a challenge uh, whereas delhi requires something very tangible clarity on the border uh, for one apart from many other things uh, you know a seat at the nsg is a tangible change and i think those are again the sort of structural factors that are going to make this difficult um, but yeah i mean i'm sure suresh should have some thoughts on what india's sort of military options can be i think india's military options there are military options but as manoj has already pointed out the exercise the cost of using it is going to be extremely expensive first and foremost yes we can grab as manoj has already pointed out we can grab some territories and we can bargain for a status quo a uh, second option perhaps could be exercising our power uh, in south china sea and i i i look at it from a very realist point of view i think in a larger scheme of things i think there are going to be three options that are uh, we are going to take one is we have to maintain our internal balance internal balance will largely look at how military capabilities we are going to develop over a large period of time second regional options regional balancing and third one is we are going to we are already in the laps of united states and that is the way ahead though not alliance per se we can call it something else we can call it uh, strategic partnership something something deep partnership but getting that sta1 status and improving with our own military with the help of united states is largely going to be our way forward uh, right that is going to be strategic in a long term period of time uh, in short term i think there are options of flexing muscles on boundaries using different different tools and trying diplomacy over military military diplomacy and diplomacy over military option to solve the current crisis and alliances okay no, i'm not using i'm not, i'll not be harsh i'll not use alliances a word strategic partnership regional balancing and internal balancing in the long term uh going ahead for next 30 40 years to deal with china in the future these are the two options that i these are the limited options and economic decoupling on uh, important notes because right now if you check the statistics there are way too many sectors where we are very much dependent on china so decoupling of economy on critical notes these are going to be larger strategic challenges and tactically building our own house i think these are the options in india as limited options in india's plate my my last question which was on this issue of external balancing right so you you've already mentioned the internal balancing 
and Kopitschek. I, I completely agree that over the long term, there is no substitute for national power, economic and, and the military power that comes from it. But in the short term, people have said uh, that if nothing else, this Galvan incident and the Ladakh crisis should um, uh, force India to choose sides in this emerging Cold War between the US and China. So leaving aside that problematic formulation of the Cold War, uh, your report, and I'll bring it back to your report for the final question, mentions that India should cultivate a status as a swing power. Now, from what you've just said now, both of you suggested that um, the India-China relationship will be structurally problematic and that the way that India grows more powerful, uh, both in aggregate terms and in and of itself as its own economy, will be through partnership with the United States. That to me doesn't sound very much like a swing power. So can you unpack for me what you mean when you say things like Because uh, prima facie, that sounds like, you know, that old rehash of non-alignment strategic autonomy. Is that actually what you're talking about? I think, I think uh, we are nowhere a swing power right now. I slightly disagree with uh, the statement swing power. Uh, this could be a utopia. This should be a test book option, but we are far... Uh, outside that purview right now, uh, for, on a conceptual basis, to being a swing power, uh, you also imply hedging as a theory. So, uh, and for being a swing power, we should be equidistant from both the powers. So we are not equidistant from both the power. There are a lot of structural issues, historical issues, uh, revisionist tendencies within the People's Republic of China, which pushes us towards US, United States of America. And that is why I don't think, I don't uh, think that we could be a swing power. We are already a partner, a long-term partner, and we are heading towards something called as an alliance, but it will not be as formal as alliance. I understand that there are multiple challenges if we go for an alliance. For example, we are dependent on Russian technology, Russian arms till 9 to 2035 at least. There are a lot many joint developments between Russia and India for the next 15, 20 years. Uh, there are also, I also understand that there are a few things where India and China can cooperate. For example, global, uh, for example, climate change, for example, WTO. But this can be done irrespective of whether we are an alliance or not. So I, I slightly have a problems with, especially now, looking at ongoing scenarios and going uh, and the things that are going to happen in the future, predicting the things that are going to happen in the future. I think we are far away from going a little bit far away from what we are. We are not a swing power anymore. We are already a partner. And going forward, uh, we should anchor ourselves with the partnership of US, if not an alliance, get that STA status, and then look at regional balancing. Uh, for example, it, this week, we were uh, looking at partnership, deepening our partnerships with uh, Vietnam. So regional balancing, basing agreements in the South China Sea, perhaps, and then along with that internal, because internal balancing per se is not going to help us. The parity between China and India is too much. So it is not going, to, it is alone not going to help us. So US along with regional balancing and internal balancing, I think this is the combination for the relations to go ahead. It is, this is what I think. 
So I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of what Suresh said, but uh, and and this is just a sign of India being a democracy. Even within a think tank, we have a disagreement over the concept. Um, but yeah, the idea is this, right? Um, the way we define the status of a swing power was not necessarily to be equidistant from both of them, because honestly, that's not possible. Um, just given the history of these relationships and given the geography of it, I mean, it's just not possible. Uh, the way we defined the concept of swing power was in the having the ability to deliver pleasure and pain to each side and therefore using that ability to hedge on different issues. Um, as uh, General Menon, who's the director of our strategic studies camp, the strategic studies sort of uh, program talks about it. Uh, India won't belong in a camp, but will be in different tents on different issues with different partners uh, over, over different states. Now, obviously, the number of tents that we are in with the US is far greater. Um, yet there are certain tents that we are going to be in with China and uh, those are to our interests. Um, so that's one, that's the way that we've defined the notion of a swing power, uh, not keeping in mind equidistance, but having the ability. And a lot of that ability comes from what we do domestically, internal balance. Um, the other aspect of it is a lot of that ability would also come with having our options open for multiple partnerships. Um, yes. An alliance uh, will help us in some ways or the other, but will also constrain our actions in some way or the other. Um, does India see eye to eye with the US on the Middle East? I don't think so. Um, does India see eye to eye with the US on issues in Africa? Not necessarily on everything. Um, do we want to get into a situation where uh, we want to get into an alliance which then constrains our options? That's one thing from New Delhi's point of view. Let's look at it from Washington's point of view. Is an alliance on the table? Um, are we being offered an alliance? And if, our, if we are being offered an alliance, what is the nature of that alliance? Um, is it a NATO-like alliance? Uh, you know, given the fact that even today, nearly 20 years into the Afghanistan war, India has not sent boots on the ground in Afghanistan. And even today, if you were to ask India to send boots on the ground, I think parliament will say no. Um, perhaps government and analysts, folks like me would want to say, I guess we should consider the option, but parliament will say no. Uh, so I think that some of those challenges uh, are going to be difficult for India to meet. And again, the fact is, is Washington offering an alliance? I think there's some bit of a rethinking that needs to happen in Washington also with regard to the idea of the Indo-Pacific strategy. To me, it's still sort of developing and evolving. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, what do these partnerships mean? Um, can whoever is in power in the White House deal with uh, pesky partners pushing back and not necessarily carrying their burden, which, uh, which President Trump likes to talk about? Um, is there willpower, a staying power in Washington to be able to deal with those things? Given that you've been, you know, Washington's been involved in ugly negotiations with South Korea about burden sharing uh, with the Japanese. Um, will India want to sort of find itself in that position? So I think that's what makes some of this far more complicated uh, in terms of an alliance. Um, and it, uh, the constraining of political choices will be problematic, particularly when you've got a neighbor on your border, which is much larger, which is threatening, and it's potentially going to be involved in a cold war. Do you want to become that front line in that cold war? What does that entail? Um, so I think th those are the kind of things that New Delhi needs to decide, also looking at what Washington is thinking and how Washington is acting. Um, and the last few years, I don't necessarily think that what the Trump administration has done with its, how it's dealt with its partners has or allies has uh, inspired that much confidence. Um, 
And I think that's the sort of challenge in this sort of, I don't think I have a clear answer, but I think that's the sort of challenge. So therefore, sort of clearest answer in all of that is to be able to cultivate your capacity through different partnerships and through internal balancing to be able to deliver pleasure and pain to both these sides, Washington and China uh, and Beijing. And I think uh, uh, our objective would obviously be to be in a capacity to deliver as much pain to Beijing as possible to deter it from taking the kind of actions that it wants to take. Um, and I think that's the way we, that's the way that we've conceptualized this notion of the swing of a swing power uh, because of the challenges of being in any one camp. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't necessarily serve all our interests. Um, uh, if Iran is a classic example. Um, the fact that the Indian government's positions on Iran changed over a period of time uh, have led to much consternation in India itself. Uh, and, you know, geographically, we have different uh, interests than the United States. Um, but yet, on a broad strategic sense, in a broad strategic sense, there is a congruence uh, which we have. Um, again, India wants to see a multilateral, multipolar world. The US is pulling out of multilateral institutions. Um, so how do you sort of work with those parties? Yet we see them working together at the UN on a multiple number on number of issues, say, uh, to keep sort of Chinese influence at bay in some ways. Um, so I think these interests are far more complex. Uh, they are not necessarily as straightforward. You can't reduce the foreign policy of uh, a country as large and as significant as India to one issue, China, or to one issue, Pakistan. Um, there is obviously ambition within India, which I don't think India has hidden this in 1947, that India has great power ambitions. Um, the, op the problem has been that sometimes we've sensed, we've thought that we are a great power without actually having that power. Um, so I think some of those things will constrain how we sort of will sort of inhibit how we operate and how we approach some of these sort of definitions of alliance, non-alliance, whatever. And I think some of these definitions are really, they box in your options. Uh, so I think we need to look at these things far more creatively. Um, that's how I would approach external balancing, right? I mean, the Russians are as important today to us, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the defense minister, the Indian defense minister is now for the second time traveling to Russia in the last two months. Tells you a little bit about the influence of Russia. Do you want to get in a position where you lose that power, uh, where you lose the ability to play with that power? It's not easy. Um, so I think that's how we've conceptualized spring power and that's a sort of complication, that's a sort of complicated chessboard that we look at, yeah. Well, I think that's actually uh, an excellent conclusion that brings together many of the threads that your report talks about and that we've spoken about today. Uh, everything from what India can do to strengthen itself, to build partnerships, to manage the rise of China without necessarily confronting it. Um, I think we're out of time, but I will say, Manoj and Suyash, thank you very much for your time. Um, for the listeners out there, whether it's morning or afternoon or the middle of the night, wherever you are or whenever you are, the report from Takshashila is called An Indian Approach to Navigate China's Rise. And the weekly newsletter is called PLA Insight. Uh, I commend both of them to you. Uh, and thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. This podcast was produced by Ian Smith. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Ward. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.